Well, we are continuing, uh, given that it is summer, continuing with our trek through some psalms as we uh, are wont to do during the summer months. And uh, our psalm this morning that we will be looking partly at, we'll be looking at the first nine verses, is Psalm 116. If you have your Bibles with you, as always, I'd encourage you to open them up and follow along, not only as I read, but as we go through and look at different verses and words and phrases. If you don't have a Bible with you but would like to use one as I preach, you can look in the row in front of you and you'll find the Bible that, uh, that I'll be uh, reading from uh, in, uh, underneath the seat. If you use that particular Bible, you'll find our passage on pages 510 and 511. Psalm 116, verses 1 through 9. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Psalm 116 is kind of right in the middle of a batch of psalms that that go from Psalm 111 through 118. The whole of them are called hallelujah psalms. Uh, we, you know, if you've been in church uh, long enough, you've heard that phrase, that word, hallelujah, uh, many times. Hallelujah really just means they are praise psalms, psalms of praise. If you just kind of scan through those uh, psalms from 111 through 118, you will find in those psalms the, the phrase, praise the Lord. In our particular psalm, it is at the end. You'll see that in in verse 19, which we'll be looking at next week. Hallelujah just means praise the Lord. And so these psalms are hallelujah psalms. Psalm 150, which we heard earlier, uh, Tim read in his call to worship, that sums up. It's the capper. It's the last psalm in the whole Psalter, and the whole thing is a hallelujah psalm. I mean, it just goes on and on. Praise the Lord. Praise Him in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His heavens. Uh, Praise Him with trumpet, Jim. Uh, Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine. Uh, Praise Him. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It ends with hallelujah, the whole Psalter. Now, Psalm 116 is not only a hallelujah psalm, but more narrowly, uh, Psalm 116 fits in what are called the Egyptian hallel psalms. So again, they are psalms of praise, but they are the Egyptian psalms of praise, Psalm 113 through 118. 
18. And the reason those are called the Egyptian Hallel is because they are sung during the Passover when the Jews were remembering specifically how they were set free in the Exodus, set free from slavery in Egypt. Uh, Psalms 113 and 114 were sung before the Passover meal, and Psalms 115 through 118 were sung after the Passover meal. So this psalm would have been a psalm sung after the Passover meal uh, during that feast. Now, I've divided it into two because as I was going through, I just realized that it, it, it got to be so much that it, it seemed like in order to do this psalm justice, it, it wouldn't be good to try to cram everything into one sermon. But then as I was researching the psalm, I found out that the Greek translation of the, the Old Testament called the Septuagint, which was translated before Christ was even born, actually breaks the psalm into two. It, it breaks it into the exact uh, way that I'm breaking it up. Uh, verses 1 to 9, and then a second psalm of verses 10 to 19. So the psalm begins with, I love the Lord. Again, Psalm 116 is a hallelujah psalm. It ends with praise the Lord, which we will look at uh, next week, but it begins with this amazingly touching statement, I love the Lord. It's interesting because the Bible commands us uh, all throughout of different postures, ways that we as human beings, as creatures created by God and sustained by God, the Bible tells us at many different places how we ought to respond to the God who created us. We are told to worship the Lord. We're told to serve the Lord. We are told to honor the Lord. We're told to praise the Lord. We're even told to fear the Lord. And all of those things, when we think about who we are in relation to God and the fact that He gave us everything we have and we owe Him our entire life, we owe Him our existence, all of those statements make sense to us. We're talking about the infinite Creator God. And so it makes sense to us that we would be commanded to serve him, that we would be commanded to fear him, that we would be commanded to honor him. And yet, this psalm begins with the statement, I love the Lord. Who is the person who can say that? This deep affection for God. Can you say that this morning? As you sit here this morning, you examine your own heart, can you say honestly, I love the Lord? Ask yourself that question. Notice that the psalmist goes on. I mean, that would be, it's almost like if the psalm ended with, I love the Lord, it would be a great psalm. Uh, But he goes on to tell us the reason why he loves the Lord. He says, I love the Lord because He's heard my voice. He's heard my pleas for mercy. He has inclined his ear to me. I think the amazing thing here, before we even get to anything else that the Lord has done for this psalmist, the amazing thing here is that what the psalmist is focusing on first is simply the fact that God listens to him. That's it. 
the psalmist is overwhelmed at first by the fact that God listens to him. Why? Why is he so overwhelmed with, with just that fact? Well, I think for two reasons, at least. There could be more, but I think first of all, the psalmist is here contrasting God, the living God, the true God, the creator God. He's contrasting God, the true God, who can hear cries for mercy with the idols of this world that cannot. Psalm 115, which we recited in our, uh, in our call to worship, and which comes directly before this psalm, Psalm 115 talks about idols. It says, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be glory. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold. They're made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear. The Bible tells us that as fallen humans, we are idol makers by nature. John Calvin put it that our hearts are idol factories. It's by our sinful nature that we like to have idols. We like to turn away from the true God and we like to turn to an idol. And oftentimes, as Scripture says, we make up our own idols. We craft them. In the, in the olden days here when Psalm 115 was written, they actually made idols. And you can still find idols around the world today that are crafted and carved out of wood and painted and bowed down to and worshipped. The thing is, even if we're not making an idol out of wood and carving it and painting it and all of that, we still craft our own idols. I don't know how many times in my life, it's been many, when I've been in a conversation with someone about the God of the Bible, and this person responds to me when I say something about the God of the Bible that they don't like, such as maybe the God of the Bible actually punishes people for sin, uh, their response is, well, my God wouldn't do that. It's interesting that they put it that way. They, they don't want to argue back with me, no, 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 God wouldn't do that because we can actually go to Scripture and they can be proven wrong. It's interesting they go to their God. My God wouldn't do that. Well, the reason your God wouldn't do that is because your God is made by you. And so if your God is made by you, your God does whatever you tell him to do. It, it's real simple. I mean, your God does whatever you want him to do because you made him, and you command him, and, you, and you're the one that fashioned him. You invented him. See, on the one hand, having your own God is nice because there's nothing that your idol can do that will ever offend you. Your idol does whatever you want him to do or her, whatever your idol may be. The problem is when you actually are in trouble because although your idol does whatever you want him to do, your idol cannot hear you when you cry. Your idol is nothing. So when you're riding high, it's nice to have an idol. When you're down low, it's not any good. And so the psalmist here is contrasting God, who can hear cries for mercy with the idols that cannot. 
But secondly here, I think he's, he's kind of overwhelmed because the psalmist is saying that the God, the true God, the God who created the world, the God that keeps the universe running, the God that can hear when we cry is the God who does hear when we cry. See, it's, it's one thing for God to have ability to hear us. It's another thing for God to actually incline his ear to us. I mean, it would be completely understandable, especially given that we're sinful, be completely understandable for the God of the Bible to say, yeah, I mean, so what? So you were in trouble. I've got work to do. I don't owe you anything. I don't owe you my ear. I don't owe you my time. I don't owe you my mercy. You owe me everything. Why are you crying out to me? Get to work. That would be perfectly understandable. But no, God hears this psalmist's cry. The psalmist is overwhelmed because the psalmist was in a desperate situation. Look at verses 3 through 4. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. The language here is past tense. The psalmist is describing the situation he was in. I was in this state. And the language is desperate language. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. He's using dramatic language, language of constriction, language of entrapment. And the things that he is saying constricted him or entrapped him or laid hold of him were not human beings, but death and Sheol, or we could translate that the grave for modern ears. Death and the grave. Those were the things that were grabbing hold of him. Now, it could be that the psalmist was actually in a state of imminent death. It could be that the psalmist had some kind of physical ailment. I mean, especially back then, uh, there are things that people could get then that we would just take, you know, an antibiotic for and, and get over it. But back then, may, you know, there are a lot of things that could go one way and now you're, you're facing death when two days ago maybe you were on your feet and fine. So it's possible. It's possible that, that the psalmist was literally on his deathbed. And if so, then we can certainly understand why fear of death would grip him. You know, when you're you're facing imminent death, the fear, no doubt, ratchets up. He describes here the mental state that he was in due to his facing death. I suffered distress and I suffered anguish. Now, the reason I say it could be that he was facing imminent death is because we're not certain. Uh, Old Testament scholars point out, and I think it's just, you don't even really have to read Old Testament scholars. You can just read the psalm and, and think about your own life, and you can come to the understanding that he didn't have to be facing inevitable death to suddenly have a fear of death and a fear of the grave. 
One Old Testament scholar says, one should not conclude from the reference to death and the grave that the psalmist was on his deathbed. Rather, the point is that he is in great distress over death. Because if you think about it, though grave illness might enhance the fear of death, death doesn't have to be imminent. Death only has to be inevitable. Death only has to be inevitable to grip you in its fear. You know, every single person in this room will die. It is inevitable. The, the moment that we take our first breath is the moment that we are on our way to the grave. Uh, even Willa is on her way to death this morning. Death is inevitable. No matter how long we might be able to dodge it, there isn't a person in this room that can dodge it forever. You know, there, was, there were tornadoes that came through uh, Westchester, uh, I don't remember how long ago, time, I get lost in time, uh, may have been two weeks ago, it was pretty recent. Anyway, Donna and I were at the office and the sky turned this really scary black and uh, out of nowhere, it was a nice sunny day, and then suddenly it's black, and, uh, and I get this warning on my phone that then makes me jump, uh, and it says tornadoes are coming through your area, so I go down to Donna's office, and uh, she and I are watching the radar for about a half an hour, and, uh, and we're watching this tornado red area pass right over where we are. And, uh, and, and, you know, they're saying well, we could hit, get hit by tornadoes, and I'm looking out the, the front door, and I'm hoping that Stonehouse will survive. Uh, we're contemplating running down into a terrible basement uh, that I don't really want to go down uh, if this tornado happens. Now, eventually, uh, no tornado hit us, and the red blotch passed beyond us. And Donna and I breathed a sigh of relief, and I went back to work, and she went back to work, and I was pretty certain that I was safe. Now, how different would it have been if the red blotch just kept going back and forth, and the news anchor, whatever the weatherman said, you know, if you're in this red area, you will get hit today by a tornado. It's inevitable. I don't think I could have gotten back to work. I mean, I think I would have stared the entire, and I would have probably booked it into the basement uh, that I didn't want to be in. You see, it just, if it's inevitable, it changes everything. We're all going to die, and so we as humans like to push that away from us. We might not be actively thinking that we're pushing it away, but just think of all that we do. We entertain ourselves constantly. What do we call it? Do we call it death insurance or life insurance? We call it life insurance. Nobody wants to, Who wants to buy death insurance? That just sounds depressing. Blaise Pascal, the philosopher and mathematician, he uh, mused that kings, kings that could have whatever they wanted, all the, the food and, and the riches and whatever they wanted, that he mused that kings inevitably chose court jesters by their side. He said, why is that? He said, the reason they want court jesters by their side is so they can be constantly entertained, so that 
All day long, they can be taken, their minds can be taken from the thought of their own mortality. Kings couldn't bear the thought that one day they would die, and neither can we. The point is this, whether death was imminent or whether it was only inevitable, when you think about it, it can cause deep and desperate fear and anguish. I worked with a man uh, when I was worked for the newspaper, uh, the, the Gazette, Maryland Gazette down in Maryland, and uh, obviously, um, and uh, anyway, uh, I worked with a guy who was a, a Jew, a Jewish man who grew up uh, learning the Old Testament and, uh, and understood that God was holy, that God was just, that He was going to face Him one day, uh, and understood that, that God demands uh, obedience to His law. And that was all he knew. Uh, He knew there was no more temple. He knew there was no more sacrifices. His rabbi apparently had told him there's no need for that anymore. I don't know where he got that idea. Uh, But he and I were having a conversation one day, and he, uh, his jaw dropped, and his eyes got as wide as saucers when, when I told him that I didn't fear death. And he said, I... I don't believe that. I've never met anyone who doesn't fear death. He said, Max, I am scared to death of death. And I said, Mark, the reason I believe you're scared to death of death is because you know that there's a God, you know he's holy, you know you're going to face him, and you don't know what to do about it. I was able to share with him that the reason I'm not afraid of death isn't because I'm holy, but because I know the one who is, and that he's given me his righteousness. I don't know what happened to Mark. But we had some good conversations about it. What about you today? As you sit here today, and as you ponder your own mortality, what happens to your heart? What happens to your mind? Are you afraid of death? Are you in distress the more you think about it? Or would you rather just not? Are you, like Mark, scared to death of death? The psalmist was distraught. And he describes his cry for mercy. He says, then, in my distress, I called on the name of the Lord. I said, O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. The psalmist understood two things. He understood first that his deepest problem was not at the level of his body, even if he was facing imminent death. Notice that his cry is not, Lord, heal my body. When he's thinking about death, his cry is, O Lord, deliver my soul. He understood that his biggest problem is not the healing of his body, it's the deliverance of his soul. Jesus himself, kind, loving Jesus, that people in the world say, I love the Jesus of the New Testament, I just don't like that nasty God of the Old Testament. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. See, The psalmist understood that he needed his soul delivered. 
If his body is delivered but his soul is not, he's still in eternal peril. And he understood, secondly, that in order to have his soul delivered, there was only one person who could do it. And so he turned to the Lord. He turned to God. The psalmist says, O Lord, deliver my soul. The psalmist is most concerned, in other words, not with what happens to him temporally, but with what happens to him eternally. That's where he goes. The psalmist cries out, O Lord, deliver my soul. And notice, notice beginning at verse 5, notice the dramatic shift that occurs in the psalmist. You see the shift that happens here. The first part is all about how distressed he was. And notice that though he began as a person who cries out for help, he ends after he receives God's grace. He ends as a person who shouts out in praise. Look at what he does. First of all, he praises God simply for who he is. Verse 5. Notice what he says about God. He says that God is at the same time both righteous and gracious. You, you see righteous kind of sandwiched in there, right? Gracious is the Lord, our God is merciful, and then sandwiched in between, and he's righteous. The psalmist could be, and probably is, echoing what God said to Moses. Moses, you know, we all know the story, most of us, of, of Moses and, uh, and the Ten Commandments and, and, and uh, you know, the, the Ten Plagues and crossing the Red Sea and all of that. Well, at one point on the journey, Moses asked God for a favor. He said, I want you to show me your glory. Can I please see your glory? And God said to Moses, I'm going to make all of my goodness pass before you, and I'm going to proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy, but you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Moses, God's chosen deliverer for Israel, who was a friend of God, the Old Testament says. Moses, who spoke to God every day, could not see God's face and live because he was a sinner. And so God says, I am going to hide you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until my glory has passed by. And then I will take away my hand, and you'll see my back, but my face will not be seen. And when the Lord did that. The Lord descended from the cloud. He stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And as the Lord passed by him, he said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, forgiving transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. In that moment when God revealed himself and said, you want to know what I am most like? 
I'll tell you what I'm like, Moses. I am eternally merciful and eternally just. And I will not sacrifice either one. When we think about God's mercy, oftentimes we think about God as turning a blind eye to sin. We think of God as some old grandpa who's distracted over here while we sin and didn't notice what we did. We think of a God who doesn't care that much what we do. But he stresses to Moses that he does not turn a blind eye to sin. God is always and ever righteous so that he cannot turn a blind eye. If he were to overlook sin, ignore it, turn a blind eye, he would cease to be righteous, and he will never cease to be righteous. So he tells Moses, you see, Moses, I am both righteous, punishing the guilty for sin, and merciful, forgiving sinners of their sin. Somehow, God forgives the sinner and yet punishes the sin. And that's what the psalmist declares. He says that God, who could have, probably should have, given him justice, given him what he deserved, gave him instead mercy, while never ceasing to be righteous. So he praises God for who he is, but he also praises God for what he's done. Notice what he says here, the Lord preserves the simple. That's a, probably a, a good translation of that word. That, that word just means someone who is easily led astray, someone who's gullible, someone who's easily deceived. One scholar says that that term, the simple, is a term which has no trace of merit whatsoever. The psalmist is describing himself as someone who has no merit of his own. In other words, however the psalmist used to speak of himself, his experience of God's amazing grace has led to a feeling of overwhelming humility. He was simple. He was easily deceived. He was fallen prey to the schemes of this world and of Satan. And God gave him grace. Look at his words. He said, he saved me. Friends, that is the language of someone who understands who does what in salvation. He saved me. That's what the psalmist says. It is the sinner who needs salvation, and it is God who provides it. All the sinner brings to the table is his sin. No merit whatsoever. You know, when you have received that kind of grace from God and you know it, that is, I think, the one thing that you never tire of saying. You know, as a Christian, uh, even though I've been saved, there are a lot of things that I still have a hard time saying. You know, I, I, I mean, and this unveils itself weekly. Uh, sometimes daily. I have a hard time sometimes admitting that I was wrong. I have a hard time admitting that I was the one that wronged this person. I have a hard time admitting that I don't know 
that thing in the Bible that you're asking me a question about. There are many, many things that as a Christian and as a pastor, I might have a hard time admitting. But I'll tell you one thing that I say like that and never have a hard time ever saying is that God saved me, is that I was a sinner saved by grace, and that's what I still am. John Newton, former slave trader, now Christian, says, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. See, we all start out as sinners justly deserving God's displeasure, and what we need most is objective peace with God. Scripture says we are at enmity with God. So whatever we might be feeling, maybe you're here today and you've never even once feared death. I don't know. There are a lot of people out there that don't seem like they're bothered by anything. See, it, that, that doesn't matter. <laughs> it's, first of all, not your subjective fears that need peace. It is your objective war with God that needs to be settled, however you might be feeling Christianity is not primarily a way of helping us cope with life. Christianity is not primarily a way of helping, helping us get through tough times or, or giving us teachings that give us peace of mind. You know, if, if you have a disease, if you have something really wrong with you, then the order in which you hope things happen is that the doctor first heals you of the thing you're dealing with, and then you have the peace of mind that comes from that. It does you no good if the doctor just quotes nice poetry to you and doesn't fix the problem, so that you feel better, but you still die from it. The psalmist is most concerned that his war with God is ended, and that's what happened. But notice, in verse 7, that it does transform his state, his subjective peace. Verse 7, return, O my soul, to your rest. A few verses earlier, the psalmist saying when he was struggling with all of this, he was in anguish. He was suffering distress. Now, even though he's still inevitably facing death, he's not saved from physical death, now he finds rest for his soul. That's what Jesus said, isn't it? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The point is this. When you come to know that you have peace with God, you come eventually to have peace within. It's peace with God that gives you peace within. This doesn't mean the Christian never struggles with fear. It doesn't mean the Christian never struggles with anxiety. If that were the case, the New Testament would never have anything about that in there. In fact, the New Testament is full of commands that we ought not worry, that we ought not be anxious, that we ought to pray and leave things in God's hands. Obviously, we still struggle with that. 
The difference is this. Before you're saved, before you have objective peace with God, you ought to fear. You have every reason to fear. If you are at war with God by nature, by by sin, then death ought to be your biggest fear in life because you are on a one-way ticket to face a holy God for which you have no answer. The problem is that so many people on the wide road to destruction are not fearing as they ought. The difference is that after you are saved, after you have objective peace with God, fear makes no sense at all. We still fear, but we don't have to. Our biggest problem has been solved. We have peace with God. We are headed to a glorious future where God will say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's why Scripture tells Christians all over the place in so many different ways, you have nothing to fear anymore. Why can the psalmist have rest for his soul? Because he says, the Lord has dealt bountifully with me. He doesn't say I have rest for my soul because I've figured it all out. But the Lord has dealt bountifully with me. And here then in verses, beginning in verse 8, he defines what having been dealt bountifully with means. Obviously, he starts, you have delivered my soul from death. That's what he was mainly concerned about. That was his primary problem. If his soul is not delivered from death, then nothing else that follows really matters. That's the primary thing. But notice that the rescue of the soul from death leads to a transformed life now. He says, you have delivered my eyes from tears. Think about it. I mean, like I said, today's baptism was was unusual because Willa didn't cry. Usually there's tears involved when the water hits uh, the baby's head. Our first entrance into this world is met with tears. I think every single one of our children, other than, than Andrew who wasn't breathing at first and had to have a team of doctors get him to breathe, but, but once he was breathing, what was he doing? Crying. Our, our first moments in life are filled with tears and cries, and that continues for the rest of our lives in this world. In this fallen world, our lives are full of tears, tears of physical pain and tears of emotional pain. And the Lord promises us, if you are in Christ, that one day every single tear will be wiped away. Think about that. Psalm 56 actually says that God keeps count of our tossings, that he puts our every tear in his bottle. Think about that. Have you ever considered, how, how can God wipe every tear? It, Revelation doesn't say that God kind of wipes our tears away. Our every tear is wiped away. How does God know our every tear other than that he keeps track of our every tear? So that one day in the future, he will do away with every one of them. But the psalmist is not so much thinking about the future, he's thinking about the present. He's saying, you've delivered my eyes from tears. I think he's speaking mainly in the present. Now, obviously, 
He's, I think, speaking hyperbolically. Now, did the psalmist maybe never cry again? Maybe, but I doubt it. This side of heaven, our lives are going to be full of tears. I'm sure his still was. But Scripture says that once we are right with God and once we have a sure future where every tear will be wiped away, our tears now are different. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul tells us as Christians, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. See, Paul is acknowledging that we're still going to grieve in this life. We're still going to continue to weep in this life, but once we are saved, we will no longer weep as those who have no hope. And so there's a, a sense in which his tears have been removed now, but notice also you have delivered not only my my eyes from tears, you've delivered my feet from stumbling. Here the psalmist is talking about how the salvation that the Lord provides has given him guidance for his walk down here. Our past of having been forgiven and our future of glorious hope transforms our life now as we walk this road home. Which means, ultimately, the psalmist says in verse 9, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. He's not there yet. He's still walking in the land of the living, but now he's going to walk before the Lord. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, says, The mercies of God quicken. He that takes a review of his blessings looks upon himself as a person engaged for God. See, for the person who is given a new lease on life from God, he, that person is given a new view of life lived for God. That's what the psalmist is saying. As the psalmist journeys through this life, having been saved and having his tears removed and his stumbling feet solved, he journeys now walking before the Lord that transformed his life and his future. He walks simply as someone who loves the Lord because the Lord first loved him. Christian, why do we love him? I'm sure if you are in Christ, you can echo that same thought. That same sentiment, I love the Lord. You can say the same thing, but why? Why can you when so many other people can't? It's not because you had it in you. We were sinners justly deserving his displeasure, and God forgave our sins while still remaining righteous. See, we ask ourselves, how? How can God do that? How can God forgive sins, never ever acquit the guilty, and yet at the same time be merciful? How can God love a sinner like me? Well, my former pastor in Maryland, uh, I'll close with this, he started out as an ardent atheist. As a boy, I mean, he grew up in a home with parents that pressed atheism into him. He uh, became a boy that pretty much hated God, and even as a teenager, went down to the state house in Annapolis and argued as a teenager, like, what teenager takes time to do that? He went to the state house and argued uh, that all Uh, all references to God should be removed from any of the state documents of the state of Maryland. That's how ardently he was against the Lord. 
But the Lord, when he was in college, had mercy on him and saved him and changed his heart and brought him to faith. And Glenn just wrote a book, and, and in the book I was reading it this week, he says this, one night while he was in college, he's now been saved, a local pastor tried to explain how God could love sinners. I had a, I had a uh, difficult time focusing on his message because I struggled to deal with my sin. The offense of taking my Creator for granted and defining life for myself, not to mention how I had slandered Christianity for years, was weighing heavily on my soul. He was like this psalmist. He said, I wandered out in what was now late at night and found myself walking into a dark chapel. I sat down, and alone in the quiet and in the dark, I asked aloud, God, how could you possibly love me? And he said, the instant the question left my lips, I heard a clunk somewhere in the wall where an automatic timer must have gone off, and instantly super bright searchlights lit up the cross right in front of my face. The image is forever etched upon my soul, connecting with what the pastor had said about how God could love sinners like me. You see, the only place in this world, the only place in the history of the world where that conundrum of how God can be always just, always punishing sin, never acquitting the guilty of sin and forgiving sinners is found at the cross and only at the cross. It's only at the cross where God's perfect love and justice meet. See, all of us, we do everything we can to avoid death. We run from it. We ignore it. We avoid it. But when Jesus came to earth, he said, I have come to die. And when Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, he set his face to go to the cross to die for the likes of you and me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the cross of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would impress upon us again, afresh today, what your Son did for us that day on Calvary. Father, we pray now that as we close our service, you will remind us again that though we face death, if we are in Christ, it is well with our soul. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.